Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of our CCRN review. For those of you that have been with me in previous podcast episodes, thank you so much for coming back for another episode. And for those of you that are new, welcome. We are walking through the core curriculum for critical care to help get us ready to take the CCRN review. So in podcast episode six, we are going to be talking about the 12 lead EKG and we are going to be discussing what's normal and what's not. So let's just go ahead and start out with um, EKG versus ECG. It really doesn't matter um, which one you use and you'll probably be hearing me in this podcast be using both of those terms. ECG is the American um, abbreviation for electrocardiography, and EKG is the uh, German abbreviation for electrocardiography. So it really doesn't matter which one that you use. Those are both very interchangeable. So if you'll remember in episode four, we talked about cardiac conduction and the pathway of conduction and so on. So if you do need a review of general conduction, please go to episode four, which will take you through that as well as a basic rhythm interpretation review. So we're going to move right into QRS nomenclature to start out with because we need to really clearly define Q. R and S in order for us to understand some of the things that we see on the 12 lead ECG. So first of all, keep in mind, the Q wave is always a negative wave. And remember that the Q wave is always the first negative deflection of the QRS. If the first deflection of the QRS goes up, there is not a Q wave present. Even though we look at the shape and we still call it a QRS complex, if the initial deflection of the QRS does not go down or negative, then there is no Q wave present. So moving forward then, we go to the R wave. The R wave is always a a positive wave. Sometimes we have two of them, two of them standing side by side. And a lot of times we call that a rabbit ear shape where it's an RSR prime configuration. And the second rabbit ear is always, or the second R wave is always called an R prime wave. The S wave is always negatively deflected. 
and it's kind of the terminal negative deflection of the QRS. So to briefly summarize, Q wave, first negative deflection of the QRS, R wave, always positive, there may be two of them, in which case we label the second one an R prime wave, and then lastly, the S wave is always negative in deflection. Now, another thing to keep in mind that when we talk about the QRS, that normal width is less than 0.12. And what we'll find momentarily is that if we have a QRS complex that's greater than 0.12 or technically at 0.12, we evaluate the patient for a right or a left bundle branch block, which will be included in this episode. So let's move on then to talking about the juncture of the QRS complex to the ST segment, because that is what gives us what is called a J point. J point stands for junction, the junction of the QRS complex and the ST segment. Very often it's, it's easy to see where you can see where the QRS ends and the ST segment begins. Sometimes it's not all that easy and all you see is kind of a bend where the tail end of the QRS complex adjoins with the ST segment. Now, what's noteworthy about this J point or junction point is it is used to quantify the degree to which a person has ST segment elevation or depression, or indeed if that ST segment is at the isoelectric baseline. So when you count vertically on the ECG, every small little box is worth one millimeter. So when we're looking at J point elevation or depression, we say that somebody has J point elevation five millimeters above baseline or 10 millimeters above baseline. And so that's clinically significant in the presence of chest pain for a patient with an acute myocardial injury. And we'll be getting into that a whole lot more when we start looking at the the patient with acute coronary syndrome. So suffice it to say right now that we're going to remember that the J point is the junction point between the end of the QRS complex and the ST segment, very often a a bend. And that's what we use to quantify the degree to which an ST segment is either elevated or depressed, again, with respect to baseline. So we know that, you know, the T wave follows the ST segment. And of course, you know, depending upon what lead you're looking at, um, most leads, the T wave will be upright. We'll be discussing the normal shape of the P, Q, R, S, and T in various leads in just a few minutes. So the most, most important thing to look at with the T wave is if the patient is having symptoms, let's say chest pain, is the T wave different from before? And so that's where it comes into play that it's always important when you're looking at a 12 lead EKG that you compare it to a previous tracing. So for example, is the T wave flattened with respect to where the patient was before, or is it inverted with respect to where the patient was before? So again, looking at a a T wave change is really important. 
A U-wave, well, you know, a U-wave follows the T sometimes. Sometimes you can see it. Usually it's very small, um, has very low voltage. And, you know, how low is low? Like one millimeter. So a U-wave represents actually uh, repolarization of the Purkinje fiber network. However, very often not seen. Now, this is going to change when we start talking about electrolyte imbalances, particularly potassium, and that will be coming up soon in this episode. The QT interval, remember the QT interval is important to trend. It's an important trending measure. And so measured from the beginning of the QRS to the end of the T, and 0.32 to 0.44 seconds or 320 to 440 milliseconds is what we're looking at there. We also know that the QT interval is highly dependent on the patient's heart rate. So as the heart rate gets faster and faster, the QT gets shorter and shorter. And the same would go for a heart rate that slows, the QT interval is going to get longer. That's why it is that when we're really, you know, documenting on a patient's QT, or you see it on the 12 lead ECG, the most important thing to take into consideration is the QT subscript C. And that little C stands for corrected. So that is the QT interval that is corrected for the patient's underlying heart rate. Now, granted, you could do this too, but I have never chosen to calculate my own QTC. Why, you ask? Because the formula is you have to take the QT that you measure divided by the square root of the R to R interval. Sorry, guys, I'm never going to do that. So on the um, monitoring system that you use, most monitoring systems have a, a QTC that you can actually bring up. It oftentimes is right next to the patient's heart rate. So you can have an ongoing play-by-play of what the patient's QTC is. There are also charts out there that show, you know, for a measured QT of such and such and a heart rate of such and such, this is your QT corrected. However you go about doing it, make sure that you know that of the two, the one that's most reflective of the the true QT interval is the one with the subscript C, which stands for corrected. Now, in the last podcast, that would be podcast five, we talked about different antiarrhythmic medications. And we talked about certain classes of antiarrhythmic drugs that can prolong that QT. If you remember, we have the class 1As, which are quinidine, procanamide, and disopyramide, which is also known as Norpace, some pretty old drugs uh, to be sure. Then we have the class 1Cs, which are flecainide and propafenone. And then we also have uh, the class 3s. Now, the class 3s that can prolong the QT interval include things like amiodarone and sodalol. And also along with that in the class 3 classification is ibutylide and dofetilide, which are also known as um, Corvert and 
Tikasin. So those are some antiarrhythmics that we know that can prolong the QT interval. However, that's not the only thing that can prolong the QT, guys. I mean, some people congenitally can have a prolonged QT, so a congenital long QT syndrome. Also, um, electrolyte imbalances, so hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and hypocalcemia are also QT prolongers. So are the tricyclic antidepressants. So we're talking about amitriptyline, for example. Also, there's a slew of antibiotics that can have a QT prolonging effect. And for those particular patients, you know, we really need to um, be monitoring them. Those include the fluoroquinolones, and that would be like moxifloxacin, the macrolides, that would be azithromycin. Also, erythromycin prolongs the QT interval. So again, pharmacy, definitely an important team player here in helping us to evaluate which antibiotics and which drugs are likely to prolong the QT, giving us a heads up at the bedside. Also, cerebral vascular disease like intracranial or subarachnoid hemorrhage, stroke, and intracranial trauma. Additional QT prolongers include hypothermia, hypothyroidism, hypoglycemia, myocardial ischemia or injury, so your acute MI patient, as well as patients with heart failure or cardiomyopathy. They are also set up for prolonged QT. So in talking about the ECG and electrolyte disturbances, what are some of the things that we see? Let's start out with hypokalemia. In hypokalemia, now again, I'm talking here if the potassium is like three or less milliequivalents, we're looking at a flattened T wave, the U wave becomes predominant. And uh, what we actually see here is we can see the U wave become pretty much electrically equal to the size of the T wave. And remember, we said the U wave oftentimes isn't even seen or it's barely perceptible. The ST segment also uh, can become depressed or flattened. And then as the K drops, and we're talking about a K of around two or less now, what we're seeing here is the U wave now becomes even taller than the T, and there's prolongation of the QT interval, and now we start to see the ST segment become depressed. A K in the ones, which is really a bad day, uh, the U wave actually becomes fused with the T wave. So definitely a hypokalemic emergency. As far as hyperkalemia, what kinds of things do we see as far as the ECG is concerned with hyperkalemia? As a general rule, if we're talking about a potassium in the sixes, we see that uh, the T waves become tall and narrow and peaked looking. So we kind of have tented T waves. Also, the QRS complex at a K of 6 starts to widen as a general rule. 
around 6.5-ish. Now, again, this all isn't engraved in stone here. This is just a kind of a, a general guideline, 6.5 to 7-ish. We can start the QR, start to see the QRS complex widen out a bit more. And now the P waves may widen out, become flat, disappear altogether. When you see the serum potassium go up to, you know, the 8s, 9s, 10 region, now you have this big wide QRS complex that becomes merged with the T wave. And so, I mean, this is a person that the next step from this point is a systole. So again, those are the kinds of things that we see with potassium imbalances. As far as calcium, calcium or low calcium, I should say, is a QT prolonger. So in hypocalcemia, we see prolonged QT. Hypercalcemia, we see a shortened QT. Magnesium, the QT prolonger is low magnesium. And that's something that um, we learn also in ACLS. In fact, magnesium is given in ACLS for prolonged QTs because the body can assimilate magnesium immediately. So the body can put magnesium to use right away because it shortens that QT interval. So when we learn that magnesium in ACLS is given for torsade de poids, it is not because every person with torsade is profoundly hypomagnesemic. The reason why we're giving magnesium in torsade is the fact that it can shorten that QT interval. And that's the most common cause for torsade to start in the first place. Hypermagnesemia, man, you really don't see that very often, but um, with hypermagnesemia, you can actually have a QT prolongation, and you can also have prolongation of the QRS complex. Now let's turn our sights to just a, a couple of drugs here, and that is, first of all, the DIG effect on the ECG. So DIG, you don't see it used that much anymore, but there are certain effects that we automatically see on the ECG when somebody is loaded with DIG and is on Digitalis. First thing is we always see that there's a prolonged PR interval. That does not mean that the patient is DIG toxic, not in any way, shape, or form. What it means is, is it's the ECG effect of being on DIG. And we know that DIG prolongs conduction through the AV node. So it stands to reason if conduction through the AV node is prolonged, then my PR interval is going to be prolonged as well. Another thing that we see with the ST and T segment with DIG is that when you look at the ST and T, it kind of has a scooping effect, or it looks like a hand, one side of a handlebar mustache or I can use the example of a soup ladle where the downslope of the QRS complex is the handle of the ladle and the ST and T are the scooping part of the label. So again, that is not that somebody is DIG toxic. What that is, is the DIG effect of being on that medication. 
And then also, just as a reminder, we've already talked about it, so I'm not going to be redundant here. Remember the class 1A uh, antiarrhythmics, the class 1C, and the class 3 antiarrhythmics. So next, let's talk about the EKG and the different leads of the EKG. I'm not going to go into super great depth here. However, it is important for us to walk through the different leads and uh, where they look at the heart. So if you think about the 12 lead EKG, you just, you know, why do we have to have so many EKGs? Well, guys, it stands to reason that each lead looks at the heart from a different perspective. So if you were looking for something like, let's say an MI, man, if you were looking for an MI, you would like to look at it at the heart from a lot of different directions in order to be able to pick up on that. And that is what the, the EKG does for us. So I'm going to talk about leads in groupings, guys, because really when we evaluate a 12 lead, um, we notice things happening in groups. So that's the way that I'm going to talk about it here. I'm going to start out by saying that when you look at a lead system, the lead that looks at the heart, or I should just say the pole of a lead that looks at the heart is the positive pole. So I want you to think about the positive pole of any lead system as being the camera. It is the thing that is taking the picture of the heart. So if, for example, I am thinking, I'm just arbitrarily picking this now. If I pick lead two, the positive pole of lead two is on the left lower leg. Okay. Positive pole. It does the looking. Now I want you to feature this positive pole sitting out on somebody's left ankle. And I want you to think about it with a camera. And I want you to think about that camera pointing upward toward the heart. Well, what kind of picture of the heart is it going to take? It is going to take a picture of the inferior wall of the heart. So that's the, the side of the heart that faces the feet or the wall of the heart that faces the feet. So that's the only thing really that this lead can look at or take a picture of if you, you use the camera analogy. Now, think about it for a second. Lead two doesn't live on the, the positive pole doesn't live on the lower left leg alone. It doesn't live alone. There are two other people that live with lead two. And that is lead three has its positive pole located down there on that left ankle, two, three, and also AVF, AVF. All of those have their positive poles located on the lower left ankle. So they look at the inferior surface of the heart and are thus known as the inferior leads. Now let's move on laterally. Which leads have their positive poles located lateral to the heart? Lateral. Well, that would be leads one and AVL. Leads one and AVL. They look at the lateral wall because both of those, those leads have their positive poles located on the left arm. So I want you to think about these leads kind of on the, the left arm and they've got their little cameras in their hands and they're looking at the heart. They are going to look at that lateral wall. So for now and forevermore, 
two, three in AVF are our inferior leads and one in AVL are our lateral leads. So without further ado, then let's move to the anterior wall. The anterior wall is monitored by what we call the V leads. They're called the chest leads. They're called the precordial leads. Just pick one. It doesn't matter. Those are V1 through V6. And they start out at the fourth intercostal space, right sternal border, and move across the chest all the way over to the fifth intercostal space, left mid-axillary line. That's V1 through V6. Now, if you put little cameras in the hands of V1 through V6, how would they look at the heart? Well, actually, V1 and V2 are located right over the septum. And so V1 and V2, we call our septal leads. V3 and V4, they are right over the anterior wall. So they are called our true anterior wall leads. A lot of times when patients have an anterior wall MI, we will see ST segment elevation, so acute injury pattern in V1 through V4. So that's anterior septal, correct? Because V1 and V2 are over the septum, V3 and V4 are over the anterior wall. Now, lastly, um, the uh, V5 and V6, think about them. They're way down there, fifth intercostal space, left anterior and left mid-axillary line, they look at the lowermost lateral wall and apex. So remember just a moment ago, we said one and AVL are lateral leads. I'm going to add to that now, and I'm going to say one AVL, V5, and V6 are lateral leads. Starting out with leads one and AVL, looking at the the upper lateral wall, wall working its way down and then down at the bottom, the kind of the distal end of the, the lateral wall down by the apex that is really being monitored by V5 and V6. Now, when you look at the precordial leads and you just march your eyes across V1 through V6, One of the things that you should take note of is that in V1, there's a small little teeny tiny notch of an R wave normally. So what we see is that that little tiny R, and remember an R is a positive deflection, that small little R as we march our eyes across from V1 to V6 that R will get taller and taller and taller and taller and taller until it's a totally upright QRS complex over in V6. That is known as R wave progression. And you see that R wave progression is always addressed on the 12 lead EKG. It's always addressed. And there's usually a transition zone somewhere between like V3 and V4 where the QRS complex is equally positive and negative. That's called a transition zone. So again, the R wave in V1 should normally be just a small little teeny tiny notch. 
that R wave as you march your eyes from V1 through V6 should get taller and taller and taller until over in V6 you have a totally upright QRS complex. This is known as R wave progression. What kinds of things are going to affect R wave progression? Well, an anterior wall MI will definitely mess that up for you. Uh, left bundle branch block, emphysema. Um, so there are, are things that are really going to mess up that, that transition from a small little R to an upright complex. And we address that on the ECG by saying that somebody has poor R wave progression. Sometimes there are certain patients where we see very low voltage to begin with across the precordium. So that might be, for example, the patient with emphysema, pericardial effusion, the obese patient, or in some MI patients. So we describe them as having low voltage, poor R wave progression. There are some other leads that we need to throw in here, and those are, we can just call them specialty leads, I guess, um, and that includes the right-sided chest leads. And not that we would do a right-sided ECG on everybody, but there are certain patients that we would. For example, one-third of the patients that come in with an inferior wall MI, they have also infarcted their right ventricle. And so one of the ways that we identify that the patient has infarcted their uh, right ventricle is by doing a right-sided ECG. So certainly we would be doing it in all patients that come in with inferior wall MI. And really the most diagnostic lead is the V4R. So really what we're doing is we're pretty much putting the chest leads, taking them from the left side and kind of doing the same thing, but over on the right. So the V4R is fifth intercostal space, right midclavicular line, which is exactly the same interspace as uh, V4 on the 12 lead, except we're just moving it over to the other side. So with a right-sided ECG, the lead that is most diagnostic for picking up on right ventricular infarct is V4R. And what we're looking for there in the presence of a right ventricular infarct or to identify one is we see ST segment elevation in V4R. And we typically see that in conjunction with the ST segment changes in 2, 3, and AVF. If you'll remember, those are our inferior leads. So since we're talking about acute ischemia, injury, and infarction, why don't we go ahead and take a look at the ECG changes that we see with ischemia, injury, infarct. First of all, what we see with acute ischemia is we see T-wave changes or ST-segment depression that indicates myocardial ischemia. It could also indicate that the patient is having a non-ST segment elevation MI. So we really look at that T wave and we ask ourselves if the T wave has changed because that is an ischemic indicator. And please notice I'm using the term changed here rather than inverted. Certainly 
If your patient has read the textbook and knows exactly how to present, patients will present with T-wave inversion, but that's not always how it is. Sometimes the T-wave goes from upright to flattened or flattened to inverted. So really what we're looking for is a T-wave change and that indicates myocardial ischemia. Now, the thing about ischemic tissue is it doesn't conduct well, it doesn't contract well, and it's very highly irritable. But the good thing, the silver lining of this all, is that if we reestablish perfusion, the ischemia is reversible. If the ischemia is not reversed, whether it be from rest or oxygen or nitroglycerin or whatever, um we're going to progress from an area of tissue ischemia to an area of tissue injury. And injured tissue affects the ST segment. So what we'll see is ST segment elevation, also known as J-point elevation. Remember earlier, we talked about that juncture of the uh, QRS with the ST segment. We called that the J-point or the junction point. And we use that to determine whether or not a person in the presence of chest pain is having an acute myocardial injury event. And as a general rule, we say in the presence of chest pain, if that J point or ST segment is elevated greater than one millimeter above baseline, that it is consistent with myocardial injury. Now, again, injured tissue, it doesn't conduct impulses well, so it's very highly irritable. It doesn't contract well, so certainly uh, patients could have signs and symptoms of heart failure. But again, we have that same silver lining, and that is that if we reperfuse in any which way, shape, or form, whether this patient's having an MI, we take them to the cath lab and we perform angioplasty with stent and we reperfuse that way, or if we uh, give a thrombolytic agent and reestablish perfusion in that manner, the silver lining is, is this can be reversed. And so if we don't reverse or reestablish perfusion at this point, we will go on to develop an area of infarction. So dead tissue. And that will give us what's called a pathologic Q wave. So you can see in talking about these different waves, it becomes very important for you to understand what a Q wave is. And we defined that earlier in this episode. We said that a Q wave can be defined as the first negative deflection of the QRS. And if that first deflection of the QRS does not go down, there is no Q wave present. Now, you might be wondering, okay, so what differs uh, everyday, routine, generic QRS from a pathologic one indicating tissue infarction? Well, what differentiates it is the depth of the, the Q wave, the pathologic Q. So when you look at the Q wave in comparison to baseline, if the depth of the Q wave is at least a third or more the height of the R wave, it's considered pathologic in the face of acute MI, a patient with chest pain, or that pathologic cue will be around for forever, right? Because that area of tissue necrosis is going to be around forever. 
So again, a pathologic cue can be identified by looking at the depth of the cue, the depth with respect to baseline now, is the depth of the cue at least a third or more the height of the R? And again, the R wave is based on baseline as well. So if so, that's a pathologic cue. That's an area of tissue necrosis. That, be, that will be around like forever. And so that's one of the ways that you can identify whether or not somebody has uh, um, tissue necrosis associated with a current MI versus an old MI. And that is if somebody has pathologic Q ways, but no ST and T changes, that's most likely an old event. So then that typically on the EKG is labeled um, old anterior wall infarct age undetermined. And that's because that pathologic cue is not being seen in conjunction with acute signs such as ST segment and T wave changes. So those are the things that we see. Again, T being ischemic, ST depression also can be a sign of ischemia. ST segment elevation, we're thinking injury. And pathologic Q wave, we're looking at necrotic tissue and actual infarction. We will be getting into this much more when we get into the podcast episode having to do with acute coronary syndrome. So uh, stay tuned for that one as well. So now let's get into talking about bundle branch blocks. How do you identify a bundle branch block on a 12 lead EKG? Well, it's really not very difficult. All you need is a right chest lead and a left chest lead. And if you'll remember your precordial leads or chest leads that we talked about before, we said that the, um, the right chest lead is V1 and the left chest lead is V6. And so when we talk about bundle branch blocks, the first criteria that would even make you think about looking for a bundle branch block is the fact that the width of the QRS is at least 0.12 seconds or 120 milliseconds or greater. That's what would even make you suspicious of a bundle branch block being present. So given the fact that we have, let's say, a QRS complex that is greater than 0.12, we take a look at the shape of the QRS complex in V1. If that complex in V1 has an RSR prime configuration, so it's positively deflected and it has kind of a rabbit ear, we always call it a rabbit ear kind of appearance, that is a right bundle branch block. And at the same time, over in V6, looking at it from the left side of the chest, what we will see with a right bundle branch block is that in V6, we will see a QR, and then the S wave will be really kind of slurred at the end rather than coming right straight up to baseline. So again, to summarize, with a right bundle branch block in V1, we see RSR prime configuration or a rabbit ear appearance. Sometimes those ears of the rabbit can be fused together into one big, wide, positively deflected complex in V1. Whereas over in V6, we see QR and then a slurring of the S wave. 
The left bundle branch block, again, start out, always start out with V1. It's really a great diagnostic lead. And when we're looking at our patient on the monitor on a continuous basis, you got to admit with a dual chamber tracing, we have what? We have lead two and we also have the V lead or the that's a V1, the chest lead, as long as, of course, it is on the patient in the fourth intercostal space to the right of the sternum. As long as it's placed appropriately, we have a V1 lead that we're really looking at all the time. Now, what is a left bundle branch block? How is it configured in V1? Just look for a big, huge, wide, negatively deflected complex in V1. So it's wide. That's the basic criteria first, correct? And then it's a big, wide, negatively deflected complex in V1. Whereas over in V6, it's a big, wide, broad QRS complex that's positively deflected over in V6. That is a left bundle branch block configuration in V6. So again, to summarize, over in V1 with a left bundle branch block, V1 will give you a big, wide, negatively deflected QRS, whereas over in V6, you're going to see a big, wide, positively deflected complex over in V6. And sometimes it takes on an M kind of appearance, M as in Mary type of appearance over in V6 as well. The last part of our talk today is talking about uh, chamber enlargement. And we're going to talk a little bit about atrial enlargement and ventricular enlargement. So let's go ahead and start out with the atria. So when we talk about right atrial enlargement, we are suspicious of it if when looking at the P wave, we notice a P wave that's tall and peaked. Well, what makes a tall wave tall? I mean, what defines that? Well, if the P wave is greater than two and a half small boxes, so that's two and a half millimeters in amplitude, so that's looking vertically, and it has this peaked appearance, it actually has a nickname. It's called P. pulmonal. And P. pulmonal is an enlarged atrium related to a pulmonary etiology. So think about what it is that would cause an atrium, the right atrium specifically now to become enlarged. Well, it's going to be, you know, a pulmonary problem, pulmonary hypertension, which causes right ventricular pressure buildup and backup of fluid into the right atrium, which causes it to enlarge. Now over on the left side, the left side, we see a change in P wave as well when the left atrium is enlarged. And that has its own nickname too, and that's called P mitrale, P mitrale. And that's simply because one of the reasons for the left atrium to become enlarged is because of mitral valve issues, mitral valve stenosis, for example. And so what we see then, and in both of these examples, guys, we're, we're looking at uh, lead two here. Lead two is always a really good lead to search for P waves, but I'm sure you know that, especially when you've searched for blocks. So what we see over in lead two is 
uh, double humped P wave. So it kind of looks like a sloppy rounded M. It's a wide P wave and it has a double hump. And what the double hump re represents is a delay in repolarization of the left side in comparison to the right atrium because that, of that enlargement. So again, to summarize, the, think about right atrial enlargement and look for it in your COPD patients. Think about right atrial enlargement when the P wave is tall and peaked and greater than two and a half small boxes or two and a half millimeters looking vertically in lead two. And then typically, you know, this is your pulmonary hypertension patient. And then over on the left side, we see a kind of a sloppy double humped M shaped P wave that's widened representing a delay in left atrial activation in comparison to the right. And that is called P mitrale. Now let's turn our focus over to the ventricles and let's start out with right ventricular hypertrophy. Well, remember earlier we talked about R wave progression and we said over in V1, which is one of our right chest leads, V1 and V2 are considered to be right chest leads. Remember in V1, we said that all we should have is a small little tiny R wave. And that R wave, as you march your eyes from V1 to V6, that R wave should get taller and taller and taller and taller until over in V6, that, that QRS is totally upright. We said that is normal R wave progression. Now we're going to get into the person with right ventricular hypertrophy. That is totally going to mess up your R wave progression. You're going to have an abnormally tall R wave in V1. So really our, our R wave progression is, can almost look reversed. Uh, but certainly you have a much larger R wave in V1 than would be considered normal because it's only supposed to be a little notch. When you see that in V1, also take a look at the P wave in lead two. Because remember, where there's right ventricular enlargement, chances are there's also right atrial enlargement. So then we'd be looking for that tall peaked P wave with an amplitude of at least 2.5 millimeters. Um, and then we would say that the patient would have right ventricular hypertrophy with right atrial enlargement. Now, another thing that we can see, if we were looking at a 12 lead EKG, we could see that the patient has right axis deviation. And really that term axis represents the net direction of electrical current the net direction of electrical current. And so as that right ventricle gets bigger and bigger, the muscle's going to pull more electricity toward the right. And so that's going to give us right axis deviation. Another thing is over in those right chest leads, so V1 and V2, another thing that we're going to probably see is ST and T changes. So we can see that the ST can become depressed and the T wave can flatten or become inverted. And that's representative of right ventricular strain. 
So to summarize, right ventricular enlargement, look for big, tall R and V1, totally messes up your R wave progression. Um, also take a look at axis, right axis deviation will be present on the 12 lead EKG and also look for strain over on that right side. So that would be ST depression and T wave flattening or inversion. And then if you see that, you also look want to look for your right atrial enlargement as well. So now let's turn our focus over to the left side and talk about left ventricular hypertrophy. Just looking at a 12 lead EKG and focusing on those precordial leads, I think the first thing that reaches out at you with left ventricular hypertrophy is the depth and height of the QRSs in the precordial leads. In other words, everything that normally is there is just like exemplified. So when we talk about picking up on a left ventricular hypertrophy pattern, we look at the deepest S in the precordial leads, which is either V1 or V2. And we add that to the tallest R, which is, you know, the tallest R is found over in V5 or V6. And what we find is the sum of those two is equal to or greater than 35 millimeters. So again, over in V1, which is typically your deepest S, take your deepest S plus your tallest R. And if that's greater than or equal to 35 millimeters, you're probably looking at left ventricular hypertrophy. On the 12 lead EKG, you will see left axis deviation. And then of course, it just makes sense that you are going to seek out information about that left atrium as well. And is my left atrium enlarged? So I'm going to look for that double hump P wave that's wide over in lead two. And when I'm talking wide here, I'm talking about, you know, 0.12. So three small boxes or greater. Again, just like we saw on the right over on the left side, we can see left ventricular strain pattern over in V5 and V6. And again, a strain pattern is going to manifest as ST segment uh, depression along with T wave flattening or inversion. So guys, that pretty well sums up episode six of our CCRN review. I hope you've enjoyed this and I really would appreciate if you would consider um, subscribing to or following this podcast. Would love to um, have you join us for future podcasts. And I encourage you to please visit my website, which is khoppypresents.com. I'm in the process of putting brain teasers for each section um, on my website. And so there is a little area on the top banner that you can click on that's entitled brain teasers. Um, to kind of help you review some of the material that was covered in the podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining, guys. I hope to see you in future episodes and have a wonderful day. Take care.